I'm Afshin Ratansi, and we're going underground at the end of a year that's put Russia and NATO on the brink of all-out war. But who is the number one enemy of the world's most powerful nation, the United States? Despite this year's NATO proxy war on Russia through Ukraine, U.S. intelligence still regards communist China as its biggest military and economic threat, with many eyes now turning to the Indo-Pacific and China holding the top spot for the world's largest navy, while the U.S. plays catch-up should the focus turn away from the fighting on the ground and in the skies of Ukraine and onto the real battle of the 21st century. Well, who better to unpack all of this than Captain Jim Fennell, former Director of Intelligence and Information Operations for the U.S. Pacific Fleet in a 30-year career in U.S. Naval Intelligence. He has been a top intelligence official for the U.S. 7th Fleet and the USS Kitty Hawk Aircraft Carrier Strike Group deployed to Japan. He's fellow at the Geneva Center for Security Policy in Switzerland from where he joins me. Thank you so much, Captain, for uh, coming on the show. I wanted to talk about the U.S. Postal Service and the Pacific Islands and how that uh, uh, may uh, may be uh, important when it comes to what's happening in the South China Sea. But, of course, everyone is, uh, well, everyone in the Global South, perhaps not in NATO nation media, is turning to what's been happening in the West Pacific. What do you make of the People's Liberation Army Navy as uh, uh, aircraft carrier, the uh, Liaoning, uh, going into the West Pacific? Obviously, China, uh, people who support China are saying this is a response to Jake Sullivan celebrating Japan has taken a bold and historic step to strengthen and defend the free and open Indo-Pacific after Japan appeared to uh, overthrow its uh, no uh, first use uh, of weapons policy. Well, first of all, Afshin, appreciate the invitation to speak to you on this show. Um, I tend to look at things what, through what I call the strategic trend line. So uh, Chinese uh, carrier strike groups and uh, surface action groups, warships, have been transiting out through the first island chain since 2007 is when they really started to, to go out into the Philippine Sea. Uh, but what we see here over the last week, a week ago, is up to, up to 11 warships plus some unknown number of PLA Navy nuclear submarines uh, all deployed through the uh, Miyaku Strait, which is the main strait south of Okinawa, and through the Asumi Strait. And it's an unprecedented uh, deployment because you have three of the type 055 uh, Renhai-class cruisers, which are uh, you know, over 10,000 tons, closer to 12,000 tons, and have 112 vertical launch system tubes that can launch land attack cruise missiles, uh, anti-ship cruise missiles, uh, and surface-to-air missiles at extremely long ranges. And these are all deployed out inside the Philippine Sea now operating. And this occurred before the Japanese announced their new national defense strategy, national security strategy, or even in the last day or two announced that they're probably going to up the size of their budget. So I think uh, what we're seeing is just a long march of what I call the strategic trend line of the PLA maritime um, expansion campaign. And just uh, to be clear, it is the largest navy. China has the largest navy. Some people may not uh, realize that. Don't you think that uh, if you were in Beijing uh, advising Xi Jinping and the uh, Central uh, uh, Committee of the Communist Party, you would be saying, we've got to show some sort of deterrent. We had Pelosi going there in a military aircraft to Taiwan. We have Japan uh, heralding a seeming budget that is uh, number three in the world after uh, China and, and the United States. Uh, we've got to show some force now. Yeah, I would recharacterize it, though, as not as a deterrence, but as a power projection capability. And the PLA has been building up for 20-plus years to have the capacity to be able to take Taiwan with military force. 
And we know that uh, Hu Jintao and Xi Jinping ordered the PLA to have that capability to take Taiwan starting in 2020. Uh, I'm pretty convinced that Xi was con confirmed in his mind uh, that he had the capacity uh, to do that as even as early as 2018. But the orders were from Hu and Xi, PLA, be ready to take Taiwan by 2020. And so that's really what I call the start of the decade of concern. Decade of concern, or just a, a decade of the beginning of uh, the ratification, in a way, of the Congressional Act in 1979, January 1st in the United States, that also recognizes what the Communist Party of China recognizes, and that is Taiwan is part of China. Well, Taiwan is uh, still something that's debatable, especially for the people that live on the island that don't want to be part of the People's Republic of China. So that, that question has been open for debate. and. The United States has been pretty clear that they want to see a peaceful resolution of this dispute. And most civilized nations have said the same. And so that's really the concern right now is that what we're seeing from the PRC and especially from the PLA, like what we saw in August, the first week of August, with what I characterize as a PLA Taiwan invasion uh, exercise that went on, firing uh, 11 uh, ballistic missiles that bracketed all around Taiwan to the north, the south, the east, and to the inside the Taiwan Strait, and then the, the continuous deployment of naval forces and air forces around Taiwan on a daily basis. Yeah, but uh, to which, of course, the Chinese say that the United States has been sending warships exactly through that region. But U.S. policy, so what, you were just saying that it's a dispute, but it isn't, is it? The U.S. Congress ratified an act that says there is no dispute. Taiwan is part of China. There's no dispute, no debate. Well, th there's the legality or the, the diplomatic language which we are referring to. But in terms of the actual es estimation, is, is there is a dispute because the PR says, PRC says we're going to take this by force if we can't get it through other non-kinetic means. You just have to go back to the APEC forum in October of 2013 where Xi Jinping said, we cannot wait forever for a political solution to Taiwan. So Xi has put the PRC, it was already on a timeline, but he's publicly exposed uh, the Chinese Communist Party's timeline to take uh, Taiwan. And they have to do it uh, before the uh, 100th anniversary of the PRC, which occurs on 1 October 2049. And given that you're not going to be able to use military force in a couple of years before 2049, it's been my estimation that uh, the PRC has calculated that the latest that they could use military force and still expect the world to come to a grand ceremony in Beijing uh, in 2049 is around the 2030 timeframe, which is the end of what I call, again, the decade of concern. And uh, presumably, Captain, you uh, weren't expecting this when you were, say, on board a U.S. aircraft carrier in the region back uh, when you were serving. Uh, this is all very new, you're saying. No, I actually have been giving this uh, decade of concern uh, uh, a warning since 2012, 2011, uh, back when I was at the U.S. Pacific Fleet. And it was generated from my experiences for the previous decade when I was in Japan, both on, as you mentioned, the Kitty Hawk Carrier Strike Group and then with the U.S. 7th Fleet, and then my, also my time at the Office of Naval Intelligence. So uh, I've had a continuous look at the PLA, uh, the PLA Navy, and have watched them prepare for this and uh, been trying to warn Americans that we're not prepared.
You don't think China have also been encouraged by recent uh, wars that the United States has been involved in, in the sense that, uh, okay, the United States uh, theoretically believes that Taiwan is part of China, but China is also viewing what has been happening over the past 20 years, the U.S. Uh, defeat in Afghanistan, notably, and, of course, the NATO wars in Syria, uh, Afghanistan, um, Iraq, uh, Libya, and realized uh, they better get a move on because uh, the United States is expanding its reach, 400 military bases around uh, China, and that's, uh, that's what's concerning them, not uh, the semi-mystical idea of an anniversary uh, numerologically and the importance of reuniting China. Well, my, the numerology is not a myth. It's something that they clearly state over and over again uh, that they're going to have a grand ceremony on 1 October 2049 to celebrate the rejuvenation, the great rejuvenation. And they used to use the word restoration as well. And that means they're going to have to restore what they believe is their territory. And as you've described, they believe Taiwan is theirs. They believe the Senkakus are theirs. They believe the lower Ryukus are theirs, the Nansei Shoto. They believe the South China Sea is theirs. And they believe much of the disputed border between India and China is, is theirs as well. So we have a lot of areas where the People's Republic of China and the Chinese Communist Party have put a stake out there and said, these are ours and we want them. And they're not going to be able to have that ceremony on 1 October 2049 and have a, whoever the paramount leader is at that time is not going to be able to stand up in front of the forbidden city and say, we've achieved Comrade Xi's uh, you know, great rejuvenation without having actually rejuvenated and restored uh, what they believe is theirs. And now I will say, I believe that they have been on a strategy to use what they call comprehensive national power, which is using soft power to hard power to achieve their strategic end state. So they've got wolf warrior diplomats, they've used economic warfare. We saw what they've done in the South China Sea with lawfare in uh, the ability to build uh, uh, seven islands in the Spratleys and to seize uh, Scarborough Shoal from a U.S. treaty ally, the Re uh, Republic of the Philippines. So they've been very successful at using non-kinetic force. But as I stated, their planning has included to be prepared to use military force. And as time goes on, uh, there are going to be more and more people inside uh, Zhongenhai, which is the, the leadership compound in Beijing for the Chinese Communist Party, and they're going to be hearing more and more uh, calls for it's time to pull the lanyard, it's time to use military force, because we have to use it, we have to get through this. Uh, we have other things, as you said, we have uh, changes maybe in American uh, political situation. China has their own demographic issues. They've got issues with an aging population. They've got age, uh, issues okay, with well, access well, before to... Okay, before we get into that, uh, but surely all you've just described is... Uh works with the idea that they are the superpower of this century. There are uh, echoes, perhaps, of the Monroe Doctrine in uh, Latin America or south of the Rio Grande. They have the largest uh, economy by GDP as purchase power parity. They um, already have the largest navy. Uh, completely natural that they should seek to protect their country, given the 400 US bases of, a, of they would argue, a declining superpower. And, of course, they've always said, uh, they don't invade countries. They're not like the United States. They just want to protect their own country and their own uh, uh, region. Uh, perfectly natural, isn't it? And the U.S. can't do anything well, about it because they're the most powerful country. You, you've got the Chinese Communist Party talking points down perfectly. But I would push back and say that... Uh, uh, they actually have used their military to uh, cause, uh, uh, you know, 
unsettlement and disruption to the peace and stability of the of the Asia Pacific region. Uh, you know, I was like. Like you noted at the beginning, I spent almost 30 years in the U.S. Navy, and when I first started going to sea in the Asia Pacific, it was a relatively calm place, and we didn't have nations that were worried about conflict with China. We didn't have a nation like Japan saying, we're going to blow away 70 years of history, and we're going to start preparing ourselves because China's getting ready to use military force to attack not just Taiwan, but as, us as well. And so China's been a force for disruption, uh, and they've used their military forces to threaten and cajole people. It wasn't 30 years ago. I mean, we had the president of Palau on, and uh, he was quite aware of the allegations that the United States was involved in the assassination of his predecessor. Uh, people in the Philippines, quite aware of uh, U.S. involvement at destabilizing opposition groups in the Philippines. Uh, was it really that peaceful in the Indo-Pacific uh, during that time, or were there lots of covert operations to prevent any kind of, well, so the uh, critics of U.S. foreign policy would have it, uh, democratic ability to uh, have sovereignty on these islands away from United States control. I'm pretty sure that the president of Palau said that he would welcome U.S. defense uh, forces uh, in his island nation. He said that repeatedly throughout the last couple of years. So I think, you know, you can cherry pick and try to, you know, say America is a bad country. But the reality is China has changed the strategic dynamic in the Asia Pacific with their uh, military buildup and their economic coercion and their, you know, lawfare activities against uh, their neighbors in the region. Just look at the South China Sea and, uh, you know, the Declaration on the Code of Conduct. Written in 1999, China's violated every eight elements of that Declaration on Code of Conduct. They've threatened people in the South China Sea. They've tried to prevent Filipino sailors from getting food and water uh, in, in various locations down there. They've taken action against, uh, you know, island nations like uh, Indonesia and Natuna Basar. They almost got in a war with Vietnam in 2014 over an oil rig ship that they put into a, a Vietnamese uh, a, a oil block. So we have a lot of areas where we've seen the Chinese military rapidly threaten uh, their neighbors, not, not just Taiwan, but others, like the, around the Senkakus with the Japanese. But worse still, we saw, what China, we saw what China did in Hong Kong, subjugating 7 million people under their control. Captain Jim Fennell, I'll stop you there. More from the former Director of Intelligence and Information Operations for the U.S. Pacific Fleet after this break. So what we've got to do is identify the threats that we have. It's crazy. Confrontation, let it be an arms race. Who is on offense? Very dramatic uh, development. I personally am going to resist. I don't see how that strategy will be successful. Very critical time. Time to sit down and talk. Welcome back to Going Underground. I'm still here with Captain Jim Fennell, former U.S. Pacific Fleet Naval Intelligence Chief and current government fellow at the Geneva Center for Security Policy. Yeah, on Hong Kong, you said uh, subjugating. 
that China is subjugating the people of Hong Kong. So you don't believe the British were subjugating Hong Kong when it was run by a virtual dictatorship and a governor. I, I ask this because in relation to all those different issues that uh, certainly have played a part uh, as regards uh, Southeast Asian difficulties with China that have sort of sorted themselves out at ASEAN meetings over the years, that isn't the key factor here that China has brought 800 million people out of poverty and that uh, record is what is so persuasive all around Southeast Asia as all these different countries in that region are so terribly impoverished. Western uh, NATO nation allies uh, in the South Pacific, let alone uh, even, even Japan now perhaps heading for recession. Well, the fact that the Chinese opened up their economy and allowed in market forces that allowed the people of China to recover from the devastation of Mao's, uh, you know, great leap forward and cultural revolution, I don't think that's hardly a, a claim to fame. And if the Chinese Communist Party was doing so well, then you have to ask yourself, why did so many people around China go on protest about the last three years of being locked down and murdered in their apartments and having their doors welded shut? Obviously, so the Chinese government denies that and say that there have been tens of thousands of demonstrations every year over the past uh, 20 years uh, or more. How serious is it, the uh, poverty? How serious is it uh, a threat to U.S. hegemonic power in the South Pacific that these islands are so poor that 40% are uh, on the verge of uh, uh, hunger, in, according to uh, a recent U.N. report? Uh, how, how serious is that? Yeah, I think there's, like I said at the beginning of the program, I think there's areas where America and Australia and New Zealand and other Western nations uh, have neglected their attention. Uh, we, United States, uh, fought uh, along with our allies in the South Pacific and Oceania uh, throughout World War II, and a lot of American and Allied blood was shed uh, to defend those islands uh, from uh, Imperial Japanese Navy 80 years ago. And I happen to be fortunate to travel through uh, Kiribati and the Solomons and, and Bougainville uh, a couple of years ago, right before uh, the, the Chinese Communist Party's virus hit everybody. And I was able to uh, see the residue or the reservoir of goodwill that these people have still towards America. So my the things that I've been telling Americans, audiences that I talk to is, this is an area that we need to pay uh, more attention to, not just because we have historic ties with these people, but also because the Chinese are seeking to come in there and to in, establish their control and their influence. Which, which side were the uh, Taiwanese who hated Mao back then? Uh, one wonders. I only ask because there's been a report that there are Taiwanese fighters in Ukraine. What is the impact of the Ukraine war? on uh, U.S. hegemonic power in the South Pacific? Because uh, think tank uh, pro-Blinken uh, people seem to want to say, look, China isn't in with Russia. We can use somehow Ukraine to cleave Russia and China. How do you see it as a former uh, director of intelligence in the U.S. Pacific fleet? Well, we've watched the Chinese and, and the Russian forces operate together uh, since the establishment of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization in 2005. That China and Russia just announced a new naval uh, exercise uh, with a, a, a full squadron of Russian naval assets leaving Vladivostok. So these Chinese, uh, almost a dozen warships and submarines that were out for a week from the Chinese side are probably going to be operating uh, with their Russian counterparts. I would expect Chinese uh, naval forces to circumnavigate uh, Japan, go along and up the east side of Honshu, 
uh, and then come up through the north to operate in the Sea of Japan, at least at first. And then we saw just about three weeks ago, Russian and Chinese fighters and bombers operating again, once again together, the fifth time this year. And at the end of that exercise, Russian bombers and fighters landed in Chinese airfields and Chinese bombers and fighters landed in Russian airfields. So I have been very vocal that Chinese and Russian military forces have a strong military alliance. Uh, we've seen Putin invite uh, Russia, or Chinese military forces to observe Vostok, which is a, uh, uh, a Russian strategic nuclear exercise. They've done that twice. Uh, and so I am, I, I, I've been on and seen Chinese uh, and Russian ships operating in the Mediterranean. I was on a Chinese warship in the uh, Baltic after it had operated with the Russians up in the Baltic in 2019. So there's no question in my mind that the PRC, the PLA, and the Russian military uh, are operating and coordinating closely, and they've been building this for two decades. Okay, but Bill Burns uh, at the CIA said this month, the USA will be ready for any contingency that the military is told to execute as regards uh, Taiwan. And uh, so they're, they're all, all ready for all these threats that you've been going on about for all these decades. Yeah, that's what I would expect Bill Burns to say. I think uh, the Indo-Pacific Command commander, uh, Admiral Aquilino, uh, gave a, a talk or an interview with PBS over the weekend and said something of very much of the similar. Actually, that was. That was Admiral John Aquilino. <laughs> okay. Well, yeah. what did he think of what he so said? Well, I know him. I served with him at the U.S. Pacific Fleet headquarters, uh, and I just know that's the that's the standard line that you're going to give. Do no, you agree with no it? No commander. What's that? Do you agree with it, that the USA is ready and, uh, and presumably the implication? No, I don't, believe, I don't believe we're ready. I think we have a lot of work to do to be able to uh, deter the People's Republic of China from using their military to uh, take Taiwan and do these other uh, rejuvenation exercises. But why, given that uh, the detractors of the kind of policy on China that you are advocating believe it's just a method of recycling U.S. public money into big uh, multinational arms companies, do you not think it's a bit ironic that the U.S. military uses all these Chinese components for their naval activities? that any increase in U.S. military spending there, and I know that just uh, in the past uh, few months, uh, it failed another audit in November. Pentagon Comptroller Mike McCord conceded only 39% of its $3.5 trillion of assets could be accounted for. Uh, do you not see that uh, the problem here is U.S. corruption and actually increasing U.S. spending actually just helps the Communist Party of China? Well, I have been warning for two decades that the, the U.S. should uh, be paying attention to what's happening with the People's Republic of China and the, the PLA specifically. And we spot, as you, I think you alluded to in this uh, broadcast, the America spent quite a number of years from Desert Storm, Desert Shield, Desert Storm, until uh, the ignoble uh, retreat from Afghanistan. We spent 30 years in the Middle East. And I had been one of the people that had said we need to you know, deal with terrorism, obviously, for what happened on 9-11, but we have to deal with the rise of China. And we, for, we as an institution, the Department of Defense, and as a nation, didn't pay attention to that. And I think history will judge that to be a wrong decision. Does that mean it's over for America? Not, your, not on your life. We have many things that we can still do. We're still very powerful. But we need to wake up and recognize that if we do not deter the People's Republic of China, much like Ronald Reagan did against the Soviet Union, uh, we're going to be in a, a world of hurt.
But isn't it slightly different, uh, the uh, Soviet Union to China, given that China is the most successful economy, arguably, in the world? And why does the United States have to deal with it? Why can't the United States cooperate with China, it's like, what, the biggest trader in the world already uh, being China, to uh, make a mutually prosperous world, as I know you'll say is the Chinese Communist Party talking point. Why not do that? Why always think that China wants to... I don't know whether you think the Chinese want to invade Texas or something. I, what I would say is we, we know what the Chinese, Chinese Communist Party does when it's in power. They run things through their small clique. They've never invaded any country since getting to power. Well, they, they tried to invade Vietnam. They tried to invade uh, India. They've actually crossed the line and invaded India. So we can dispute that. Well, I think that, they helped the, the Vietnamese is... defeat the United States. They didn't want to invade Vietnam, did they? I don't think if you'd ask a Vietnamese uh, that they'd say that. There's a lot of people that were killed by the Chinese communist, uh, communists uh, in 1979. Anyway, you asked So the you honestly about... believe China wants to invade other countries and expand China to become... I'm not, <laughs> to own the world, uh, actually, territorially? I think that China believes that these territories that I've mentioned earlier are theirs and that they will use military force to take them. You can, you can align yourself with the Chinese Communist Party and say that they're China's, but that doesn't mean they are. And so they're, they're going to use force if, we can't, if they can't get to a resolution one way or another. Uh, okay, but I'm not, like I'm not paraphrasing uh, directly Donald Trump's uh, inauguration speech, but given the infrastructure in the United States and the uh, uh, horrific uh, lack of manufacturing, uh, the, the disaster, I think I can't remember the exact words of the inauguration speech, uh, which was so eloquent about what has happened as regards uh, U.S. infrastructural decline. Surely the United States would do a lot better investing all this money into the United States and the people of the United States rather than care about a few islands in the South Pacific, uh, which uh, some would argue are none of the United States' business. Well, I, I actually agree with what you're saying, but I would invest them in building ships. Uh, I, if you look right today, China has 19 major naval shipyards compared to seven for the United States. And of one of those that China has, Zhongangdao out of Shanghai, is the same size or, or is equal to the seven that the United States has. So, for instance, in 2021, China commissioned 22 warships and the United States commissioned just three. Now, people say, well, numbers of warships don't matter. Well, China's been beating the U.S. Navy and the U.S. in tonnage for the last decade, and they also are outproducing us in the number of long-range anti-ship cruise missiles and other high-end capabilities like that. So what I'd like to see is the United States kind of create what they had in 1940, a two-ocean Navy act uh, that helped us be able to win World War II. We need something that dramatic in the United States that shows and demonstrates to Xi and the Communist Party that they're not going to be able to do what they've done to the people of Hong Kong or the people of Xinjiang or the people of Tibet and their own people. Okay, but Nobody I mean, obviously the Chinese deny absolutely any kind of uh, problems in Xinjiang of the kind that uh, uh, they accuse no, of being propaganda lie. in, in uh, NATO nations. And uh, I suppose, uh, finally, I've got to ask you that there is a rumored possible trip by Antony Blinken. I don't know whether he can get away from uh, uh, Ukraine uh, issues and the war in Europe. 
What would you tell Anthony Blinken uh, to do next year if he visits China, as uh, some are saying he may do, although recent uh, events may, uh, may be uh, acting against that possibility? I tell him, first of all, not to go. Um, if we want to have negotiations with China and we want to have engagement, uh, then let's have China come to the United States, or we can do an Reagan-esque position and have, have us meet in neutral ground. Uh, but the day of United States running after uh, the communists in Beijing has got to stop. And so we've had 50 years of what I call the Kissinger School of Engagement, where we think that if we engage with China, that they'll moderate their behavior and accept international norms and, you know, and really bring about the greatest uh, amount of prosperity in human history. Uh, but that hasn't happened. Things have gone worse, and we can't allow that to happen. And so I would advise uh, State Department leaders and Defense Department leaders to uh, hold the line. We don't have to go talk to China th until they are ready and willing to compromise. Captain Jim Fennell, thank you. And that's it for the show. We'll be back next week with another brand new episode. But until then, you can still keep in touch via all our social media if it's not censored in your country. But you can always head to our channel, Going Underground TV on Rumble.com, to watch new and old episodes. And a Merry Christmas to all of you watching from the whole team here at Going Underground. See you very soon.